Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. You can check out my Daily Evolver YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter and find all my stuff on dailyevolver.com. Today, I'm talking with David Fuller, who is one of the emerging luminaries in the emerging emergence movement. David, along with his partner, Alexander Biner, founded the media platform Rebel Wisdom four years ago, and they have built it into a significant, integrally informed cultural player. In our conversation, David shares his own personal journey of development and how it led to the creation of Rebel Wisdom, and he describes how the platform has itself evolved, morphing beyond its initial association with Jordan Peterson, who has gone hard anti-left, and how Rebel Wisdom has moved forward into new arenas, most notably sense and meaning making, and is currently exploring the territory beyond atheism, which is, of course, very interesting to me, and I hope to you as well. David and Alexander have hosted several integral conversations with Ken Wilber, as well as an integral panel discussion with Diane Mushel Hamilton, Steve McIntosh, and me. There is one slight technical glitch for those of you who are watching this on video. My side of the conversation was recorded in audio only for some reason, no video. So when I speak, you'll see a still photo of me, which is why I'm so stiff and my lips aren't moving. All right. So our conversation today starts with David explaining how rebel wisdom is differentiating itself and attempting to make new sense in today's information ecosystem. Thank you for listening. And here's David Fuller. One of the things that I'm very conscious of is that it's really easy to get, like in this information ecosystem, it's really easy to be overwhelmed. It's really easy to lose our bearings. And I think that happens to all of us. And that's kind of, that's a real kind of topic of what we cover on Rebel Wisdom is how that happens to us and what all these forces are. And so it's great to hear from you that, that it's something that you seek out as someone who's got uh, something of an elder in this space of kind of developmental consciousness and been aligned with a lot of these kind of interesting conversations and a sense of kind of a teleology to the conversation, which is something that we've really found since the beginning, going on this journey of sense making and finding these interesting voices and sort of seeing how the different pieces fit together in the kind of information ecosystem. I'm, I'm in a constant dialogue around what should Rebel Wisdom be doing? What should we be doing next? What's the right level of analysis? We did a whole deep dive into kind of ivermectin and vaccines and stuff in the right. summer that was, I still don't know, was the right thing to have done. Like, is that the right level of, of analysis or is it more the kind of the, the God-shaped hole in the culture or what is a rebel wisdom piece? In a world of, of, of limited time, attention and focus, I'm constantly in a kind of dialogue about what is the right thing to, to focus on. Yeah. And so I'd say the recent piece that we just put out uh, last week about the new religions of the pandemic endgame, I felt like that was about on point 
yeah. of looking at kind of the religious thinking under, underpinning a lot of the reactions to the pandemic. It's like, okay, that's, that's, I think, the right level of resolution. But then sometimes you have to go a little bit deeper in to, to kind of analyze the truth statements of different things. But yeah, I'm, I'm constantly in a dialogue and I'd love to get your opinion. What, what do you consider a rebel wisdom piece and what do you consider the, the piece that, that we're holding in the current yeah. cultural conversation? Um, I do. I have to say the religious endgame of the COVID e epidemic was brilliant. I mean, that really helped me to understand what's going on. And, and I, you know, I, I'm naturally going to be listening to all the different voices and critical of the different voices. And you talk about this, the thesis of the COVID epidemic, which is the mainstream media, you know, establishment thesis. And then this antithesis that comes up. And how, you know, they work together and, um, uh, you know, and they capture their audiences and they have you know, all sorts of motivations. And I thought you really, with your, um, you know, your various experts that you talked to really sorted it out. I would recommend that to anyone as the quintessential rebel wisdom piece. I mean, I really feel like you're hitting your, your stride. I think you've been hitting your stride, but I think you really hit your stride with that piece. Yeah, I feel it's the first, not, not, the, not the only, but it's the, the first for a while where I felt like we've got a grip on the pandemic. Yeah. Because the pandemic has been such a kind of warping factor for so much and so many, so many people who were focused on, I, th I think one of the guests we had, BJ Campbell, said this really well, that the conversation around sense-making that was evolving in 2018 so many of the people involved in that conversation have been sucked into the crisis that they thought they were covering. And so you've ended up with people going down rabbit holes. You've ended up with people kind of, I think, losing their way quite significantly. Um, yeah. Regular viewers will know probably some of the names I'm referring to there. But, but then you've also got the issue of some of these people are now personal friends or people that we featured on the channel. So there's all of these other factors that come in that warp our understanding of the world because of this, in this world where we're all our brands and personal flaws then become the major failing conditions, failure conditions of alternative media. So institutional reasons are why the mainstream media has failed and is failing, but personal re or our psychological biases and blind spots and failures are the reason I think so many individuals fail. Audience capture, giving, trying to kind of give people what they want, um, yeah. aligned incentives, friendships, all of these kind of factors. Um, yeah. So this, this, is, this is a huge topic of conversation. One I'm very, one that motivates me probably more than any other is this search for truth in an environment with so many different factors that push against it yeah. and a different set of factors in the alternative than in the mainstream coming from the mainstream and then having that kind of framework and then bringing it over to the alternative is I think given me a not completely unique, but a relatively unique perspective on the yeah. difficulties of the, the sense-making or truth-seeking yeah. process. Yeah, the, the way I see it from a developmental point of view is that in a way, this is the evolution of the media. 
this is the evolution of the collective space where we go from, you know, it, 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 I grew up with three stations plus PBS. We had two or three people telling us what was true every night because now we're moving into from a modern media system to a postmodern media system where everybody gets a voice and everybody gets a brand and everybody's out there competing. And it's messier in many ways, it's more contentious. It's certainly not pretty. It was prettier in the old days, I'd say, but it's better. And, and so the mess of the media is in a way right on schedule, but of, of not just the media, but the media, the thesis, the antithesis, all of it, you know, the conspiracy, all of the stuff that's going on. But what's uh, interesting and noticeable to me now and encouraging is that there's a new integrative uh, impulse that's coming mm -hmm. online where it's not about taking the one side or the other side. It's about expanding one's consciousness so that both sides can reside in your consciousness. And you can, I, I remember you and Alexander were talking about this on the, the COVID um, uh, uh, piece that you just did, where, you know, you actually wanna feel and have the emotional resonance of these various perspectives not just understand what they're thinking, but actually where they're coming from, what, the, what, developmental, what developmental level they're coming from. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science to see that the thesis side is coming from the postmodern liberal, um, you know, the, the lockdown people. And the resistance to that is coming from the people on the right. And, you know, developmentally, that's, you know, the, the traditionalists, Maybe they have a foot in modernity. And then we have the people who are the postmoderns, and they have a foot in modernity too, but they literally think differently. And so what's called for is this new integrative space that I think you're really making happen. I mean, what we're talking about is, is those with meta capacities, really. It's the ability to, as you say, look at it from a more integrative perspective and also by the nature of integrity, you've got to look at the good and the bad in everything. And I think the way of, it's getting out of a way of thinking that is constantly, it's a sort of binary, is this good, is this bad, is this person good, is this person bad? And recognizing that every person and every perspective has a mix of both, which is obviously very core to integral theory. And you can't really negotiate the world now I think without that ability yeah. like if you're if you're trying to kind of go in a broadcast mode which is how we made sense of the world like certain people would be off the table or certain people would be kind of um yeah everyone was either all good or all bad in some ways um whereas now with we we have to take the rough with the smooth we have to accept we have to acknowledge and realize like certain people's blind spots we can be fans of people's content, but also be aware that they've got a particular blind spot in this area or this area. And I think there was a really interesting conversation by Eric Weinstein and Sam Harris that I actually played a clip from in the, the piece that we just put out where they were talking about the nature of alternative media and the need. The clip that I didn't use is where they talked about dining a la carte and how that we just, we're not, 
able to focus. We're not able to do that. We, we, we've lost the skills to be able to say, well, this person's right about this thing, but they're wrong about this thing. And because it's such a demanding thing to do. And there were all these did, short- did we, ever have those, did we ever have those skills? I think in, in a way that's new. That's an emergent mm. thing to be able to yes, do. I think, I think that's right. I think yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, um, so how did you get into this, David? Even integral at all? I mean, how did you even mm. get magnetized to integral? And and you know, what kind of a kid were you? Were you no. a speaker kid, or were you kind of a mainstream kid, or where'd you grow up? Just give us a little bit of your background and how you found your way into this kind of thinking. So as a kid, I was pretty lonely, I would say, pretty alone. Um, my parents moved from a kind of rural place to a, to a town when I was about seven years old. I never really settled there. I had a few health problems. This is England? Sort of, yes, Southampton. I grew up in Southampton. And to, so I went, I went traveling for a bit after before uni, then went to uni in Manchester and did a lot of exploration, kind of psychedelics and a lot of, I, I studied philosophy and, and a bit of theology as well. Were you um, raised religious? Did any of that take as a kid? My parents were Methodists when we were growing up. And I remember going to these gathering places for people within the Methodist church to go and talk about Basically, what would Jesus do? I think is the the central question. Yep. And it was very it was very 1970s. It was a lot of kind of sandals and beards. And I, I always I always think my parents got the political radicalism of the 60s and 70s. They didn't get the kind of cu cultural radicalism. Interesting. They, well, to to a degree, my dad was a naturist, so we went on naturist holidays and was but they weren't open to drugs particularly or any of the sort of the social, cultural. Yeah, I think they were secretly more quite countercultural. I was a, I rebelled against my dad pretty much from as soon as I can remember. Didn't have a great relationship with him all the way through my teenage years, which I actually talked about. I did a, a, a talk about my relationship with my father and how that was transformed a lot by the men's work that I did. That, that I put out a little while ago. Um, I think it's called My Father and I Are Healing mm -hmm. on, okay. on Rebel Wisdom. Yeah. And so I'd say my parents were very, they were definitely, it was, it was more green, I think, than traditionalist. Yeah. But with, with, a, with a fair degree of traditionalism as well. My, my dad was pretty ordered, even yeah. though I kind of rebelled against that side of things. Yeah. So, so then you went to uni. Was there any awakenings there that are significant? Yeah, I studied philosophy and English. And then in the, I think the second year or the third year, you were able to take courses in the theology department, which I found incredibly, by, by far the most interesting thing that I did while I was there. I did a Christian existentialism course, which was fantastic. Um, Hindu and Buddhist texts. It felt like with the kind of Western philosophy, all of the questions that you wrestle with are the questions that we're left with, free will determinism or 
the problem of bias and some of them are really valuable. I think the philosophy of science was particularly valuable in kind of deconstructing that kind of naive scientism perspective. But I think the reason they gave you access to the theology department in the last year was I think they realized that people needed some answers as well as some uh, just better reframings of the questions. You, you mentioned that you're about to go off to India. So of course I imagine yeah. this great brand pilgrimage Mm. with some guru uh, yeah not not quite although i am going to go and do some breath work with a, a breath work teacher that i know really well who's out in india so and I, i've done i've done that a few few different times and i i've done an awful lot of personal growth work over the last maybe 15 years or so of different kinds but i i definitely had a an awakening mainly with psychedelics at university and English as well. I, I studied things like William Blake and some of these sort of amazing mystics of the, of the English language as well. So I kind of felt like the psychedelic experimentation was of a piece with the philosophical and artistic exploration. I've had a, a real love for romanticism and the different waves and currents of the counterculture from sort of the 1800s through to the 1960s. And I've been fascinated by that story, that whole feeling of something changing, something deep shifting under the culture and like, what is that? And what are the high water marks? And how does that get integrated? And what does it change? And what doesn't it change? And how have the cultures, how has our culture been shaped by all of those different forces? Yeah, I think England has a, I'm, I'm also very patriotic. I think England has a lot of that deep kind of intrinsic eccentric mysticism within it. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that can continue to, to flourish. I think that's the source of the British creativity, which I think is, is something that we have. I, I, see, I see the UK as a place of synthesis and the US as a place of sort of dialectic. It's a, it's a kind of oppositional place, which is a, which is a form of progress, but it's also a form of, it's a centripetal force or a centrifugal, it pulls things apart. Whereas I think the UK has more of a sense of synthesis. It has a sort of healthy detachment that allows things to mix and to, to grow into new forms in a way that my sense is the US doesn't in the same way. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. I like eccentric mystic. Would that be a term you would relate to? Yes. Yeah, there are, the, there are people in the UK that I don't think you'd find anywhere else. Let's put mm -hmm. it that way. Yeah, yeah. All right, so then after university then, you um, become a reporter at that point? Yeah, I, it took me a little while to find my ground after, after university. I sort of bummed around doing various odd jobs for about, four or five years and then and I had an unbelievable series of coincidences that led me to basically getting jobs that I wasn't really qualified for in journalism so given that journalism is such a tough thing to to break into I was incredibly lucky I was probably the last person who got their um, start in journalism through CFAX which is teletext the kind of old blocky graphics. Oh, 
uh, text on TV. So I was writing those stories overnight for the BBC down in Southampton. And then a job came up in News Online, which was the, the initial kind of BBC's online news service that was then kind of rolled out around the country. And from then I was trained as a video journalist about three or four years later and then moved over into TV. I've been lucky enough that I've been able to shoot, edit, report, produce, and basically be a sort of one-man TV production system since about 2005. So I worked for Ch Channel 4 News from about 2006 to 2012, mainly as a foreign producer. So I did a lot of stuff at the Arab Spring and was there when Mubarak resigned, was there when Gaddafi was kind of toppled in, in Libya. So really kind of got a front seat to some of the kind of pretty amazing moments of the, of the Arab Spring and then left to make documentaries. And I was mainly doing foreign affairs documentaries for three or four years before Rebel Wisdom sort of quite spontaneously began in basically in 2018. Great. So tell us a little bit about that. So what, so th there's a political dawning happening here, I'm thinking. Mm. And so that leads to rebel wisdom is my assumption. So mm. what's going on there? Yeah. The main thing was Jordan Peterson, I think initially being really compelled by his work in 2017 and in particular this deep sense of the kind of the mythos of the west and this that i thought he articulated as well as anyone uh then went out did an interview with him in 2017 and then he kind of rose to to fame with an interview with channel 4 news where i used to work with kathy newman who i used to work with and this sense of incredible synchronicity especially given that a lot of the interview that i'd done with jordan peterson had been about synchronicity so <laughs> yeah it was it was this kind of incredibly compelling set of coincidences that i felt that i had to mark in some way and that turned into this film glitch in the matrix where i basically kind of channeled a lot of what i've been thinking since the trump election heavily influenced, although not credited, by Ken's book, Trump and a Post-Truth World, which ironically, when I spoke to you, you recognized the influence of Integral in the film, even though it wasn't foregrounded. Right. And so, so yeah, just this sense that I, I would frame it like this. I think Jordan Peterson was the tip of the, the spear of the... If there's a if there's a pre-trans fallacy with the reaction against liberalism and Trump is the pre, there is a trans part of that conversation. And that was, I think, Jordan Peterson, the nascent intellectual dark web and the, the idea that there were conversations that needed to be had that were not being had because of sort of naive liberalism. And actually, that naive liberalism was what was creating the reaction to itself that was a tribalism pretending it wasn't a tribalism yeah. and ultimately it was a it was a set of it was a set of views that basically held that everyone was now completely 
open was completely kind of open to to any kind of way of being in the world except for all of those people who don't think like us <laughs> and that was the the traditionalists the trump supporters the brexiters all of those people and it was this sense of this kind of growing split in society that needed to be healed that i think was the story that we tried to tell in 2018 with the peterson phenomena what was fueling this phenomena what was this real need for religion that people were responding to in jordan peterson and then where did that where did that go and we we talked recently in the the recording that we made in the digital campfire uh the panel discussion jordan peterson himself seems to have been pulled more and more towards the right the intellectual dark web i think is a phenomena never really moved on from the kind of anti-green beachhead that they established and pushed forward into a kind of genuine synthesis. I think some figures have done it better than others, mm -hmm. but that story of the, the intellectual dark web as a kind of morality tale for what can go wrong with sense-making the alternative media is one that needs to be told yeah. for sure. Yeah. So then Rebel Wisdom, how did that get started? And uh, tell us a little bit about that origin story. So there's, there's almost sort of twin origin stories. The, the one I talked about before with Jordan Peterson is really the media, the media side, but we've had a strong interest in personal growth before that. And we were... So when I say we, it's me and my colleague, Ali, um, we were actually leading men's retreats and workshops before the films came out, before the kind of the, the, the media okay. side of things was launched. So the men's work preceded Rebel Wisdom then, and even preceded Jordan. Yes. Peterson. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I mean, that was one of the topics that I wanted to talk to Jordan Peterson about, this sense of yeah, the cultural dynamics around masculinity and the cultural conversation around masculinity. Yeah. Something I've always been very interested in and those sort of gender dynamics playing out. I mean, that's what a big part of the Glitch in the Matrix film was about, was these gender dynamics that are playing underneath the culture and playing out through the culture, mm -hmm. which clearly were present during the Trump election. This sort of sense of, I would summarize Trump as a, a con artist impersonating an alpha male. <laughs> That's good. And, and the fact that we are so, were so short of genuine role models means that people actually went for, went for the, the facsimile. <laughs> no, well said. Yeah, and, and so... The question has always been like, where are the next, where's the emergent thing? Mm -hmm. What is the emergent? Um, and that's what I think we've, we've tracked pretty well so far is what is the emergent conversation? Where is the emergent conversation? Mm -hmm. Certainly with um, the sense of Jordan Peterson being this, sense of novelty in the in the culture and then the intellectual dark web being that thing and then the sort of the likes of 
of Daniel and I've, I've got great hopes for Aisha, Aisha Akambi. I think she's a really important new voice. Um, she's bringing her book out next summer, this summer. And some people have called her the female Jordan Peterson. I, I wouldn't say that because she's actually a very, very spiritual. She's fueled by a very spiritual kind of force and realization about the world. She, she's critical of, of wokeness, but from a perspective of, um, she, she seems to have a much more natural both and perspective than someone like Peterson who didn't, who had a very either or orientation. Yeah. She's that's, really, more, that's really a very key marker, isn't it? Yeah. And it's very natural. She's someone who does that. We, we had a beautiful conversation between her and Diane Michelle Hamilton, actually. Hmm. Um, because she, she naturally, she's entirely self-taught and, but naturally has this very integral sensibility and very alive, inquisitive mind into a lot of the, and, and articulates really well a lot of the, the concepts that probably most of us learned through, through books or through kind of more intellectual learning. She's, she's a, a real natural and yeah, I feel quite protective towards her because I'm, I'm concerned that she might be seen as a culture warrior, and I don't think she is. I don't think that's her natural habitat. I think she's no. much more of a, like Rebel Wisdom, I would say, we've been critical of her ideology, and, but from a perspective, I think, of a more integral resolution. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's the needle we're threading now, because yes. anytime you step off of the orthodoxy, you're automatically seen as the antithesis of the orthodoxy instead of including and adding to, you know, or integrating something else with it. And yeah. that's a lot of people can't go there. They just literally. Yeah. And also what I would say is it, we've got to have the self-awareness or self-criticism to, to know that we can be pulled off ourselves as well. It's not just the way we're seen by the outside. It's that we can, we've all got our allergies as well. And I think, the reinforcing nature of social media means that we can actually go off track yeah. as well. Like how much that open question of how much can we integrate? Do we need to integrate of green and where does it become uh, toxic is, is an open one. And I think that's a, that's a moving line. So I, I, yeah. I wouldn't say that all of our critics are only motivated by a misunderstanding of our position. Yeah. So, so now with rebel wisdom, so you're what, three, four years into it now. Yeah. And what's the structure? What, how do you make money? Uh, what kind of staffing do you have? Uh, and also, where do you see it going? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one, it's one we've thought about a lot because all of these funding structures have their warping effects on the way you operate. And we're very mindful of that. So um, we are mainly funded at the moment through courses and through membership. So we have a, a membership model where we have events, roughly one event a week and a, a regular community of people who come to those events. And then we also run workshops and courses. And increasingly courses are where we're putting a lot of energy into because you can create a really 
you can create a narrative learning journey in a course, which is quite extraordinary. And I think that's something that Ali and I have a quite a good instinct for because we're both storytellers. So that sense of like, how do you sequence a, an experience that gives people a sense of kind of an arc of change mm-hmm. through the course of the of the yeah through the course of the course is something that we're really interested in so we've got the sense making 101 course which i think is a brilliant even though i say so myself it's been incredibly well received diane is is one of the teachers on it also john baveki daniel schmachtenberger so it's it's and we've distilled down the essence of a lot of what they their perspective and it moves from how we make sense of the world from the inner the inner space of being aware of what's going on tips from mindfulness then into relational how do we relate to other people and then into relating to the world so it's a kind of natural progression from and really maps onto the quadrants it's it really goes sort of from first person to second person to third person and and then also we're we're now doing courses like the one that we're running at the moment on breath work and and always looking at kind of yeah how do we what do people want what what are people looking for yeah. and what is the what is the hole that we're meant to fill like that that is a that's an open question it's one that i'd still say we're in a conversation around we're still in a kind of we've always been in an exploration around that from the beginning and feeling into what where the project wants to go and where where the the holes in the culture are i think we're in a different place now than we were in 2018 i think we're yeah the the media landscape is very different the the nature of the kind of rejection of the mainstream i think has been increasingly kind of weaponized through covid sense making i think will probably remain core because i think it integrates all of the other factors it integrates personal growth it integrates the need for multiple perspectives it integrates all of the other frameworks that i think are so vital and so important so i think that will probably remain central even though i'm worried about the whole topic being a little bit just the word sense making whether that might be a little bit played out or people might be getting bored of it i don't know that's an open question mm-hmm. I suspect that by the time people who are kind of on the the frothy edge are bored of something, it's probably still a while before it is actually anything like a tipping point for for most people to to have heard of it. So I'm I'm kind of I'm aware of people saying, "Oh, you st- aren't you over sense making? Isn't sense making kind of played out?" And I'm I'm aware of that conversation and mindful of it, but I actually think it's it's a pretty essential term that no other term really encapsulates if if sense making were played out what do you think would be next um i mean the core values of what we're doing are based in personal growth and transformational work so i think that would always and and there's a firm conviction that without those kind of skills and those kind of frameworks where we're not going to survive that there is a there's an evolutionary journey that we that we need to go in that involves bringing in the spiritual that brings in the transformational so 
at the moment, the container of sense making works for that, mm -hmm. I think, because it feels primary before resolving any of the other the other problems. We've also like the, the, the game B idea has been quite powerful as well and quite influential in the past. Um, the liminal web, the meta web, they're all terms that people have used about us and about others involved in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, you mentioned the word. Yeah, there, there's, there's an interesting question here, and I, I know you'll have a really good quality audience watching this. So maybe, so I'm very open to people sending me emails or thoughts about where they feel are good growth areas. We're, we're a very small operation still. Mm -hmm. It's me and Ali with a couple of freelancers who work kind of 20 hours a week or so. So my bandwidth is, is relatively limited. So I'm constantly thinking about what are the biggest sort of bang for the buck in terms of what the right things to cover are or the right people to interview. But, but it's, I, I'm interested in what it might look like if we were to expand. And that's, that's something we've, we've talked about. And that, that's an open question at the moment, really. What would it look like if we expanded, if we developed into more of a sort of media operation? And how would that, how would that look? Yeah. It's not easy putting out content. It's a lot of work to put out content like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So you do that with you and Ali and a, and a few free, freelancers. Yes. Yeah, very good. Yeah. yeah. And, and pretty much everything... Up until I'm, I'm learning to delegate a little bit more, but pretty much everything on the media side was was me up yeah. until fairly recently. Like everything was, I, I edited everything, I produced everything, and kind yeah. of filmed everything. Oh, so that that I think has allowed. That was one of the sort of the the secret sauce ingredients in Rebel Wisdom is that without that, I think it would have been so expensive to do high quality TV because that has been our kind of USP is it looks like a high quality product. And, and that was basically because of my background in TV. And, and that's something I think that, yeah, that we had an advantage there mm -hmm. from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My guess about what, I don't know if this is what would be next for rebel wisdom and, you, you and your audience, but the part that I find that is, you know, to me, it wants to come online is the spiritual, you use that word. I mean, that mm -hmm. there is some way for this cutting edge to grow into a realization of the capital M meaning of life, of the loving intelligence that is behind the Big Bang and this whole evolutionary structure that is trans-religious. I mean, different religions can be, you know, religions become an art form at this, this stage where uh, every religion, and including indigenous and all the structures of religion for all of history, you know, have some way of accessing this second world, <laughs> if you will. And that's the one thing I find missing from the, you know, the, the, the cutting edge so far is the, 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 the insistence that it's still just one world. Mm. And um, I think there's something there. So that's my two cents.
Yeah. Do you resonate with John Vervecki's work? I do. I love John Vervecki's work, uh, but I do find it that that's missing in it for me. One of his overt principles is the uh, debunking the two world idea. Mm. And, um, you know, the two world idea has been with humanity for all of humanity till about 300 years ago, <laughs> you know, when modernity came in and say, no, there's nothing other than the what's seen, measured and, you know, material. And um, so I, I'd split with him on that. But I love his, I mean, his encyclopedic, you know, I love that. I, integralists all love that, you know, just pulling from all different cultures and streams of thought. And he's mm -hmm. a virtuoso at that. So that's good enough for me. But I'm mm -hmm. finding there's an there's a empty spot in it that the heart, you know, not just the heart, the, the, the spirit uh, wants to come online. And, uh, and I don't know how to do that. Of course, uh, modernity and post-modernity, post-modernity begins to experiment with certainly subtle energies and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, while modernity doesn't even do that. Uh, mm. But in terms of actually surrendering, um, uh, having some feeling seen and loved by, I don't know who, I mean, that this is all beyond time and the words and thought and time and space, but to see, to feel seen and loved by God, shorthand. Mm is um, I think that's the next thing, but what do I know? <laughs> yeah, we will always, I mean, that's something that we really want to be part of our content is yeah. the spiritual. Yeah. While being aware, a lot of people have an analogy to that oh, word. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a deal killer for most people, even at the, even at the cutting edge. Mm. Yeah. So um, you uh, just a couple more things, David, and, and, and mm. I'll let you go because I know you have a busy night. Um, on your courses, now, I assume you did, before the pandemic, you did these courses live, and then you moved yeah. them to the Zoom space. Uh, are you getting back into the live space now? Yes, we have a retreat coming up, the first retreat since COVID coming up at the end of February, 18th to the 20th of February, we're running our men's retreat again. In, in, in England? In England, yes. And we're, yeah, I mean, we're interested in, in doing in-person stuff. The, the online courses have gone really well and it's been a, we've been surprised at how much, how powerful they can be, to be honest. Um, me too, just as an interjection. I have mm. been surprised and, and thrilled to see yeah. just what you can do online, mm. you know, and that there's yeah. real subtle energy and there's real, you know, we space, second person that can mm. arise through pixels. And, yes. uh, and I think that's terrific. I'm, yeah, no, that's been surprising and very refreshing. I, I mean, ironically, We've been working on Sense Making 101, and then we happened to launch it in March 2020. So it just happened to come online at the time when the pandemic started. And I think it's been a, a real success because we work with these sort of 
dialogic practices as well and give people we put people into small pods when they go through the course so it gives we're always trying to think about how do we how do we create a really intimate experience for people even when you've got over 100 people on a course how can you how can you design it in a way that gives people a very personalized experience and a really um powerful experience while going through it and that's one of mm -hmm. the ways that we've managed to to do that mm -hmm. which would you say is the the bigger you know where where you're going to be putting your attention the the, the live space or the media platform or you probably do both um probably the media platform and the online courses and with the potential of, of the live space as well. One of the things we'd love to do is to, is to host a, a kind of more intense, say like a week of meeting in person and then a follow-up of online for sort of six months afterwards. Some kind of process like that, I think would be really exciting. Yeah. Um, but it, it is tricky because the, the in-person events, if we're trying to keep them affordable, which we are, like our, our model so far has been to keep, like all of our courses are, are pretty cheap compared like, to- what's your, what's your pricing? So, so the, the, the Breathwork course we're running at the moment is £275 for, for five quite long sessions. The Sense Making 101, we, we put it up to it's about $500 now, but it was three, 300 for quite a while. And even at 500, I think that's like, it, it's low compared to, to what a lot of these eight week courses are. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to keep, we're trying to keep costs down and, 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 and have more people doing the, doing the courses rather than restricting it to like 20 and then having, having a much higher ticket price, which is what some people, some people are doing. Yeah. Very cool. So this yeah. is a little bit of a tangential question, I suppose, but how's the UK doing? How, how, what, what's, what's up with your politics and the queen and Boris and how, how do you see that? It's all very interesting from our perspective. Yeah. So there's a couple of things to say there. Mm -hmm. one, of, one is, so we've just put out this film with, um, on the, the religious wars of the pandemic. And one of the pieces I actually cut out, because we were talking a lot about the sort of scapegoating energy that was, has really been around, particularly from the kind of thesis perspective towards the unvaccinated, but I think it's shown up on, on all sides. And one of the, the things that Mary Harrington, who was the interviewee that we had talking about that, said was that she feels that Boris has become our scapegoat. Yeah, Boris Johnson has now become the UK scapegoat, which I think is probably a healthier dynamic than putting it onto kind of where it's fragmenting society and it's on a significant portion of your society who are considered unclean and kind of to be rejected. But Boris, with the revelations about the parties in Downing Street and all of that stuff, is now huge. I think is, is taking on a lot of this energy of like all the frustration that people have felt through the pandemic is now directed towards him. So it looks a, like a pretty good chance that the Conservative Party will 
allow him to take all of this hate and then we'll ditch him we'll ditch him in a few weeks time probably when the police report comes through so that's going on generally speaking i think the uk has done a pretty good job during covid i think that we've avoided most of the kind of overreactions that you've seen in places like australia and canada particularly in germany and austria with that sort of like almost like vaccine apartheid going on there which whatever your views on the vaccine i would say it makes little sense to split an already fragile society based on based on a metric like that given yeah. the fact that we know that when I mean, you can go into the details on it but it, effectively the vaccines i'm vaccinated i'm pro vaccine but effectively the vaccines reduce your personal risk of serious illness they don't do that much to stop transmission yeah. so the idea that you then how make hard, it can we just pause there how hard is that yeah, yeah. i mean really uh, but yeah. you so so why you would spend why you would split your society and spend so, such massive social capital on something like a mandate especially a widespread mandate like we've net we in the uk we've never had like vaccine passports to go into restaurants or any kind of major restrictions on public movement based on your vaccination status which i just think are really foolish because it creates divisions in society that i think will take years to recover from yeah and when i speak to friends in places like canada a friend of mine couldn't go couldn't go couldn't take his wife out for their anniversary cuz th they weren't vaccinated um and yeah and i i speak to other people who are not vaccinated and they're not necessarily concerned about the vaccines they're just highly attuned to being told what to do yeah totally yeah <laughs> and so they're just like i don't have any particular for or against reason but when i feel this a massive amount of social pressure or authority pressure my immediate response is no and so i know i know quite a few people like that yeah and so i feel like generally speaking we've got quite a negative liberty bias in the uk that i think has protected us from the worst of the overreactions and the overreach from the authorities um so i think generally we've done okay there mm. and i think we've we've got a more coherent society as a result of it i i i'd mention i've mentioned a few unheard pieces already mary harrington and i i do if integral fans watching this i'd i'd recommend checking out unheard yeah. it's a british media organization unheard u n h e r d and i'd say they they probably lean a little bit more anti establishment but i would say they are they're the the news organization that i'm probably most excited about from a kind of integral perspective mhm who else uh, would you who else would you mention in that's like sort of moving the ball into the integral dimension well, i know freddy a bit freddy sayers who's the executive editor of unheard and they're interested a lot of the unheard folk are interested in the the conversation around spirituality they're interested in Ian McGilchrist's work they're interested in Paul King's north they're open to the conversation that which is where i think the the intellectual dark web also stalled because of a kind of rationalist bias yes 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 like 
for me, my my interest in a lot of this stuff is that it's a sign of a theological disconnect. Yes. It's a sign of a spirit. It's a sign of a spiritual disconnect. Yes. And I think that only Peterson really had that. And he had it from a quite reactionary place. Whereas I always thought with Peterson's message, it's like if you would only take your criticism of the new atheists, which you have in spades, and I think was really well founded. Okay, well, now apply that to the culture and say, well, if you had a culture that was based only on these these metrics of rationality and success, what would that culture look like? And then you've got a definition. And that's what I I couldn't really understand that with Peterson because he was I think he, he got that. And I think if he was able to articulate some of the problems with the kind of rational worldview he would have appealed a lot more to green yeah he would have appealed a lot more you might even have seen this kind of overlap with kind of understanding what what a lot of the social justice activists were most concerned about and to be able to kind of yes and we are in a society with a lot of entrenched ways of being and ways of appreciating and measuring the world that are meaning that we we are stuck in these kind of multipolar traps and the way of the way out is to reopen to the spiritual it's to reopen yes. to the and peterson didn't do that i mean it no it was i'm not sure he you know he he believes in god to use shorthand i mean i'm not sure that that's where he, he goes there he, he has the critique of atheism he, he, he's sort of struggling for something beyond materialism but it doesn't get into the 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 divine other it, mm. however that is and that's a mystery we don't have to define that mm. but we can see that there is something someone who mm. um cares about us and who is in the game with us and and may be evolving with us actually mm. you know uh yeah but, I, I don't know if he has that personal relationship or not. It's more that I would say that that personal relationship was not expanded to the social. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there was a yes. I, I, I always felt with Peterson, there was a kind of yes and move that was not made. Um, and I don't really understand why, because it's in, it was always implicit for me in his philosophy, this definition of the kind of, narrow world view of the new atheists and how it stripped away so much meaning from the world but then the the social definition of what kind of world would that lead to you never saw him go there yeah. he sort of he sort of felt like he was reactively defending the system the capitalist system that we have and with all of its kind of flaws and I can understand why he felt the need to do that from a kind of totalizing critique, which I think is true. Like the totalizing critique is also wrong, but I think there was a path to be threaded that he never really threaded. Yeah, but he <clears throat> developmentally, I, he definitely played his role um, mm -hmm. and has done, I think of the, uh, the children of my green friends who mm -hmm. have found um, a certain kind of salvation in Jordan Peterson, that mm. they were lost before. So mm. he's definitely served his, is, is serving his purpose. And, all right. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. David Fuller, Rebel Wisdom. Uh, check it out if you haven't already, folks. Thank you. Yeah, always a pleasure to, to speak to you, Jeff. Yeah, likewise. Okay. Yeah, see you soon. See you soon.